Hi guys, welcome back. My kiddo has a rather loud horror movie on downstairs. <laughs> I can hear it up here, but hopefully it's not in the background for you guys. I'll have to listen back and make sure it doesn't sound ridiculous. Anyways, um, all right, today I want to talk about idealization trauma and being the special one. Um, I don't know if that's even actually a term. It's just what I decided to name the episode because that's what it sounds like to me. That's the best way I could describe it is idealization trauma um, and the effects of this. So I have come into a little bit of a new chapter this last week or so, and it feels actually rather good. Um, my godmom, Natalie, always tells me, you know, like when I'm struggling the most, that this is just a sign of growth or, you know, growing pains. In other words, what I'm going through at the time is a good thing. It's going to be helpful to me in my life, um, even though it feels like total shit at the time. And it's always really hard for me to believe her when she says that and I'm sobbing and I'm just having a rough time. I'm like, no, you know, and, and you know, so far she's been right. So here I am. <laughs> so um, I have done some regressing this past year in my recovery from domestic abuse um, and just, you know, just my life journey, I guess, um, which I think is only natural, right? Like recovery is not linear. You will not have, you know, you will not have a straight line. It's going to have ups and downs and times of regression and then times of regrowth and then more growth. Um, and then the last week following a rather eye-opening incident, I really, um, quite literally all of a sudden have finally come like out of this fog that I've been living in, which is kind of this trauma I'm talking about. And it's kind of like, okay, are these conflicts within my relationship my fault? Are the hurtful things that have happened within my relationship my fault? So that's kind of like the fog I'm talking about. Um, so rationally, right, most of the time, especially after what I've been through, you know, I knew that like, that's not the case. Right. Um, and, and I'm okay with, you know, taking my responsibility and things. I'm not going to sit here and say that I've never done anything. That's not the point of this episode was to like, be like, Oh yeah, I've never done anything, but it just, just, you get my point though. Right. So that regression I felt was my negative inner voice kind of like overpowering my wise mind in a lot of days, it had me believing that it was all my fault. You know, I could be doing better. If only I had done X, this wouldn't have happened. And um, X, you know, most of the time was totally ridiculous things having to do with, you know, my appearance, weight loss, and just like making myself small so that my needs didn't take up so much space right? Because things kept happening. So now um, I'm feeling a little bit differently. And I'm not here to blame this on, you know, the person that I have um, been in this relationship with that I'm referring to. Um, you know, I'm referring to, I'm going to refer mostly in this episode to the relationship um, with my abuser, but yeah. So I'm not trying to blame anybody, um, but he has trauma. I have trauma. We're both good people. 
and we both have maladaptive coping at times. Unfortunately, my default maladaptive coping when I regress is, you know, hurtfulness towards me and my self-esteem. I guess I wouldn't say unfortunately, actually, because, like, I'm just as important as anyone else. Um, And I don't tend to, like, go out and hurt other people. I guess the point I'm trying to make is sometimes men tend to cope in ways that really affect their partner. And women or folks with the psychological makeup similar to me tend to cope in ways that really affect themselves internally versus the person that they're in the relationship with. Um, So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about this kind of light bulb moment um, and what that's felt like for me. So it's not that different from the times I've had it in the past. Um, I talk a lot about light bulb moments on this show and you know, but I, I like to talk about it each time that it happens because it helps to illustrate what exactly it feels like and sounds like when you have kind of found yourself worth again. Um, and I think that's like the thing we have to do over and over again in abuse recovery is just finding yourself worth over and over again because um, it's fragile after abuse, right? It's a muscle that we have to work really hard to make strong again. Um, so the first thing that I've noticed in the last week is a transition from self-blaming thoughts and behaviors to thoughts having to do with holding the other person accountable. Now, I've experienced holding someone accountable and still following that with self-blame. And I think that's been confusing for me. So let me try to give you an example. I'm saying this to the other person. You decided to make this choice that you know is a boundary violation for me. You decided to make this choice that you knew would be hurtful to me. You chose to do this because I'm not enough for you. If I were enough for you or ideal for you or what you wanted me to be, insinuating that I'm not, you wouldn't have made this choice. Therefore, I wouldn't have to feel this. You see that? How that like started to go downhill and then it ended up back at blaming me. Um, so that's kind of like today I was like, okay, that's what I've been doing. That's like what the problem is. So, and then from there, the regression piece comes in, you know, that involves like the regressed, um, regressed behavior and thoughts and just the self blame and shame spiral. So is that really holding someone accountable or is that just recognizing it was their choice and it was messed up, but you're only holding yourself accountable as though you have the control to have a different outcome, right? Like that's really what I had to ask myself. So I think this is really important to distinguish because I've struggled with that a lot. And so I can only imagine that other abuse victims probably do the same thing when they date after um, a really terrible abusive relationship, you know, even if they don't re-enter um, a new abusive relationship or one of that severity, I, I think this is probably something that we struggle with because we've got that peace after counseling of like, okay, I have boundaries, you know, I do express my feelings, um, you know, I am going to hold this person accountable, but then we do this kind of unconscious thing we probably don't always notice. I know I wasn't really noticing it or making the connection where, yeah, I'm trying to hold someone accountable, but I'm going down that spiral of still blaming myself, still blaming myself. Um, so I've been able to identify, okay, you know, this was the other person's choice and I'm going to put that on them 
but again, was still leading myself back to being the issue or the problem and it not being like a core issue for them and not recognizing that. And I'm not really quite sure why I've done that so far. So I'm going to explore that too. But I'm going to rewind back to my previous narcissistic abusive relationship a little bit and talk about some other things and try to kind of connect all of this. So when I found the other women and I finally was able to prove um, this man was in fact a pathological liar on the level that I thought he was, um, you know, okay, the previous cheating incident was not an isolated incident. And this was, in fact, um, a major pattern of behavior for him in every single relationship he's had, as I suspected, but had no proof. Um, this allowed me to finally fully hold him accountable and not blame myself. That was like the ticket to that was that like proof. Right. And I'm confused about that because like I know I'm not always going to have that and I got to figure out how to like pop out of this self-blame without having like you know, the smoking gun or whatever. Um, But honestly, that was like the single most freeing moment in my entire life. (laughs) Like so much weight lifted from within me. It was the most healing moment thus far. It was, you know, when I was finally able to say, okay, it wasn't me this whole time. I wasn't the cause for all this. It's not my fault. I am enough. I have been enough. And I found my self-worth and hope again. Um, So this last week has felt very similar, um, you know, for different reasons, not the same situation, but I feel that weight lifted off of me again. So maybe my point to all this is when we are feeling unworthy and someone is causing us to feel as though if only we were different or better in some way, we wouldn't go through the anguish or the depression or the anxiety that we feel within a relationship when there is a rupture. Um, We really, really, really need to question the hell out of that with every fiber in us. Um, Again, I knew rationally because I'd experienced this kind of thing before and I've I've experienced a toxic dynamic, um, you know, that this isn't my thing. It's his. It's his choices. It's his behavior. It really has nothing to do with me. I knew that rationally, but my negative inner voice strong armed me most of the time and you know, so I've been dealing with this. Um, but I didn't really realize that what was that's what was going on. So we need to not listen to that voice, right? It is so good at convincing us that this is our true reality. I don't really know how it does it, but it's really good at it. <laughs> we won't ever be It's really good at convincing us that we won't ever be good enough for the ones we value most, I think, is the best way to describe that. That there is someone more valuable we are going to get left for, right? That's the abandonment wound that's coded in us. We need to not have needs and feelings in order to not cause conflict in the relationship. Um, So now that I have recognized that this whole time over the last duration of the last several months that I've been in that kind of psyche again that gets me to believe that, I need to figure out some really effective ways to combat that effectively. But also, like I said, I kind of just gracefully popped out of it. So there was an event severe enough for me to wake up from the quote unquote self-blame spell and go, oh shit, 
it really isn't me. I'm actually awesome. Like I felt like I was before. <laughs> I am still me. I am still the version of my empowered, confident self I work so hard to be. You know, I am comfortable in my imperfect skin again. And I cannot tell you how good that feels. I don't give a shit what he thinks. Um, now, I talked about all that to kind of get to this part. I mentioned it last episode, and I have thought a lot about how exactly to explain this or how to, like, analyze it. Um, I've been really curious and have felt there's, like, a really strong connection between pressure to be ideal to somebody or the notion that idealization is how you know you're truly loved after being idealized by a psychopath or a narcissist. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with this term, um, it is the first phase of three phases of the abuse cycle. So the phases of the abuse cycle with narcissistic people are idealization, devaluation, and discard. So idealization is... I'm going to do my best to describe it. I mean, this was my version of it, but I've also been to lots of support groups and have had close relationships with other survivors. And I mean, all the experiences are very similar and and, um, uniform. So idealization is really unlike anything you've ever experienced, um, quite frankly, especially if you have never even really been close to like being loved properly in childhood or in a relationship um, like myself in my life before I met my abuser. That was definitely the case for me. Um, Idealization means you are the perfect ideal woman and partner to them or person. I'm going to kind of talk about this in terms of like my own relationship, but it can be interchanged. So you are so special. You are made specifically for them. That's how they feel. It feels like a spiritual link up almost. It feels so meant to be. It is kind of the experience we all wait around for as like little girls and teenagers and young adults, right? Like when you meet an abuser and he is idealizing you, you're like, yeah, man, this is how love is supposed to feel. (laughs) This is how I should be treated. And really in reality, it is how you should be treated. It's how I should be treated. And this is a tough, um, area for me now because I have developed standards and boundaries and know what the hell I deserve and know what the hell I don't deserve. And this is a tough area for me because that type of treatment is what I deserve, but there are only small, subtle differences between authentic love and admiration in the beginning stages of a romantic relationship and in the beginning stages of a narcissistic one where you're being idealized. So my idealization with my abuser was rather complicated because I'm just kind of comparing to the other people that I've known and talked to and read about and things. And I find it to be a little bit more complicated because I was so far into the rabbit hole. Um, We were in a place where there was this openness about the disordered behavior. Um, There were conversations that allowed for me to question what was going on for him, you know, with like true, true empathy and like authentically wanting to know, um, you know, what, what was going on within him and what was going on with his suffering. 
Um, and it got to a place where I was quite loving and accepting, you know, knowing he struggled with um, NPD and the things that he did. Um, that's not healthy in a romantic relationship. Um, you know, the abuse cycle was still going on, but it got so candid. I think the idealization took over most of the time, um, especially the, the second round that we had. Um, I think it was complicated because idealization was more present than devaluation was that time. And at the end, there just wasn't a lot of devaluation going on. And when there was, I, I knew it was happening and it simply like stopped affecting me. I knew it wasn't real. So when he would try, I would be like, okay, whatever you're just doing, your stupid ass fucking devaluation thing. Talk to me when you're like in a better mood. You know, I knew it was his disorder. I knew it wasn't me. I knew I was the healthy one. <laughs> and unfortunately it stopped scaring me at a certain point. Um, I was so idealized, um, you know, and his relationship with me presented very differently at that point than with his other victims and the other survivors that it gave me this um, kind of false confidence, gave me way too much confidence. And I wasn't scared of him anymore for a while. And um, it took a pretty bad um, physically violent incident in public to like wake me the hell up and get a restraining order. So. Being idealized is not authentic. The reason for that is the admiration, the connection, the positive feelings they feel for you um, in a narcissistic relationship are so fragile and shallow. It is not a sustainable thing. It's not a sustainable state. And I think that's the hardest thing to accept when you are accepting that you're with somebody who struggles with NPD. It's just not because we aren't perfect. You know, eventually we'll do something to every person we date that will upset them or rub them the wrong way or hurt their feelings, or, you know, they will behave in some way, um, you know, or pull some bullshit. And if you're like me, the way I was with my abuser, I'm like, Hey, I don't like that you know, I've always kind of been outspoken or, Hey, you know what, because you acted that way towards me, you know, it's real small things at first. Um, you know, because you did this or you acted this way, I want to talk to you about it and how it affected me or hurt my feelings. Um, normal development of a healthy relationship, right? Like that goes on. So the first, some, the first time someone hurts each other's feelings or there's notification to the partner of hurt feelings, um, you know, a conversation follows, maybe even a little bit of arguing, you know, not seeing eye to eye at first. Um, so you'll either resolve it or you won't. But repair needs to be possible and conflict needs to exist without abusive reactions and behaviors and this cycle going on. So if you are in the idealization phase this first time, um, when the first time incident happens, in other words, when you're in idealization phase and the first incident happens within your relationship where there's hurt, um, that's the end of your idealization phase or the first one anyways. <laughs> um, these can be cyclic, you know, sometimes people only go through it once, but that's the end. That's all. That's how fragile it is. And sometimes evaluation begins rapidly following that. And sometimes it is very slow. And it's hard to notice it. For me, it was actually very slow, which made it difficult for me to identify 
what was happening? I knew something had changed. I knew something felt wrong, but I had no tangible things to point out to him. And I had no real description of the changes I was noticing that didn't sound ridiculous in an argument. And of course, they're real good at making you feel crazy after you bring something like that up. They're like, what are you even talking about? You don't even have anything to like, you don't have an example. You don't have any proof, you know? Um, Let me say this. If you find yourself in a hypervigilant state following what seems like should be a pretty solvable bounce back um, from it, type conflict or you find you have a rock in your gut or your appetite begins to decline following that or your thoughts start to race around the incident that should be kind of a small thing um, and you're ruminating, you need to kind of ask yourself, am I missing red flags? Or hey, you know, like, is this maybe my body alerting me this person is not as genuine or safe as I think they are or as they appear to be? Um, that would be my advice, kind of reflecting back on the transition of my idealization to devalue with him. Um, but this is how fragile that ideal, idealized state is. I honestly, like thinking back, I can't even really remember the first thing that we had a spat over. I remember it being very small and I remember it being a series of very small things, um, very normal things, right? Um like, I'm really trying to remember something over tamales, I think was like the first one I remember. Like, it was ridiculous. It was stupid. Um, but once you pick up on that and you are beginning to get stuck in the cycle between idealization and devaluation, and what I mean by that is once you piss them off and you're not perfect anymore and they're devaluing you, you start chasing being the ideal partner again. That's how they keep you um, enmeshed, right? Like you just want to feel like that self-worth again. You want to feel like their person again. So they keep you chasing for that. They're very good at it. Um, you know, and it flip-flops back and forth. So this is where you begin to walk on eggshells. So you don't lose that idealized status. Um, so now I have words to use to describe this, right? But back then it was more like, okay, I just need to pick my battles with him you know, he's sensitive. Um, I can handle not always voicing when he hurts my feelings. That's fine. Or, you know, when I'm nervous about something that's going on, I don't always need to say it. Um, you know, yeah, he's cheated once before, but it's been a long time and it was in the beginning, but you know, we've totally moved past it. I don't, I don't need to voice it every time I'm feeling like he might be doing it again or voice when I'm nervous that there might be betrayal going on, or I don't need to voice when I'm having a rough day you know, a flashbacks from that incident or a rough day blaming myself. I don't need to question my, or I don't need to, um, you know, get my questions answered by him when they're bothering me. Um, we get quieter and quieter and we get smaller and smaller and that's how it happens. Um, an abuser teaches us not to take up any space. We just need to move on if we want to stay with them. Um, I listened to a lecture the other day that I liked. It was by Lisa Romano. Um, she's been around a long time, but I haven't listened to a lot of her material. I just started it. But she has this episode that talks about betrayal trauma. And I liked how she described it because she was like, you know, if someone's telling you, you just need to forget it and move on or, hey, you know, like, I can't stay with you if you can't move on. Like, we can't keep doing this. And and there is, there's both sides to that, right? Like, you know, if someone's cheated and they are genuinely working on it, 
sometimes it doesn't work if the partner can't move on to a certain extent, but I think it has to be really severe. But I do, I do like the way she described it because she basically said like our brains are coded to remember hurtful events and they're coded to remember when we were lied to and when there was betrayal, um, you know, when there was pain because that's how we survive, right? We have to remember, you know, our brain thinks that we have to remember these incidents so that we can avoid them again. And she kind of used the example of like, you know, um, our ancestors had to remember like where that saber toothed tiger was so that we didn't go back to that place again and get eaten. <laughs> it's really the same concept. It made so much sense to me listening to it. I was like, yeah, okay. No wonder I can't like forget, you know, I can forgive, but I can't forget. And I do still have flashbacks. So an abuser tries to teach us not to do that and to not take his, take up any space. I do believe, um, this is why abuse and eating disorders are so closely tied. This is what they kind of groom us and manipulate our minds into thinking. You are taking up too much space emotionally. Your emotions are too big. And I feel it manifests in the body through eating disorder symptoms. You know, I'm just going to keep shrinking. I'm going to shrink my emotions. I'm going to shrink my needs. And this manifested through me shrinking physically. Um, I remember one really bad day. I just wasn't eating. I hadn't eaten in days. I was so hungry, but I just could not eat because I wanted to so badly just kind of disappear. And it wasn't a suicidal thought. I wouldn't describe it as that. It was just, I wanted to be so small that I disappeared. So I wasn't a problem in the relationship anymore. So I wasn't a problem in my life anymore because I felt like I was the one making it so miserable. That's what he had me convinced of, um, you know, in the kind of first stage of our relationship before I knew about NPD. Um, and there was a series on um, Netflix called Made. Um, if you haven't watched it yet, watch it. It's really good for abuse survivors to watch. But there was um, an episode in that series that really depicted that well visually you know where she's like laying on the couch in her house kind of in like a dissociative state when she had gone back to her abuser and she just kind of shrinks and disappears into the couch um that really resonated with me so and if you think about it like purging can maybe be a manifestation of this also right like i need to get this out of me i can't say how i feel I'm not allowed to. I can't express all of this pain. I can't express my emotions. I can't express my needs. I can't discharge this painful stuff from my body verbally or cry about it even. So I feel sometimes that purging may be a manifestation of that. Uh, I've witnessed some pretty emotional incidents with my patients and I just felt this in every bone in my body while I watched it. Um, you know, and of course tried to intervene. I don't just stand there and watch, but one one in particular really stuck with me and kind of developed that theory for me. I don't know. Just watching her do that, that's what it made me feel. I think about her a lot. Um, one of my favorite cases that I've worked on. She was a really lovely human. hope she's doing better. Um, all right. So let's talk about like some aftermath of this some years later after being idealized and going through what I just described um, in the abusive relationship. 
So when you're with someone and you're someone's favorite person intellectually, physically, especially sexually, right? Like narcissistic relationships are very sex-based. Um, and this is so much different feeling than the average person having an attraction towards you. It feels like when they look at you, I don't know, like when they look at you, they're just filling you up with self-worth. When I was in the idealization phase with my abuser, I felt so full of worth for the first time. We were very close. I mean, it felt that way, right? That's not real, but that's how it felt. Um, it was tender. It was sweet. It was like vivid, wonderful in the way of just feeling so admired to the point where I truly felt for the first time, like, yes, this person won't ever lose this for me. It's so strong. And initially I remember feeling like, yeah, this isn't going to go away for him. It's so solid. I can relax. I can tell he really cares and I'm that special to him. And I was able to be my authentic self until I wasn't right. Um, but it was subtle and it was very micro, you know, manipulative behavior to teach me not to be my authentic self. And I needed to stick to that ideal, idealized version of myself. Um, if that makes sense, like it happened so slowly and so subtly that I didn't even realize that's, that's what was happening until it was too late or whatever. So when we start to date again, and I say we as an abuse survivors, and someone is smitten with us, we will feel those similar sensations of, wow, I can tell this person thinks about me a lot, you know, or they've told me that they think about me a lot. Um, it feels like we have equal feelings for each other. I think that's something in a narcissistic relationship that's really enjoyable in the beginning. It's like, yeah, it feels like we're on the same page. Um, it's not push-pull in the beginning. It's clear-cut, and it's not confusing. Um, for me, this felt very good again, um, and now I'm referring to the this last current situation, and, you know, that it was consistent. I felt like we were on the same page. I do believe it was a more authentic version of that this time. I do, um, but I noticed that the first sign of trouble you know, I was totally able to speak my truth and use my voice, unlike with my abuser, who I ended up being afraid of to do that in front of. So I did kind of involuntarily and honestly um, say how I felt when there was hurt. You know, I'm so programmed now to voice my feelings and set my boundaries. It's like I don't even think about it before I speak. But what I did notice is even though I was able to do that for myself, my negative inner voice began developing again and begin to tell me again, Hey, you're having too many needs. Like, it's weird. It's like, I would hear myself saying, you know, standing up for myself and saying what my needs are and that I deserve to have them met. But it's like, at the same time, I could hear my negative inner voice going, Hey, Hey, you're doing that thing again. You're too loud. You have too many needs. Um, you need to dial it back. And then it doesn't help when like the person's telling you the same thing. Right. Um, you know, your feelings are too big or they last too long. You need to make them smaller. Um, you know, but the negative inner voice tells you all these things, you know, you need to make your emotions smaller. You're going to be devalued again. You need to stay ideal and perfect to this person emotionally and physically, or you're going to be devalued again. So I know cognitively that idealization isn't healthy, right? Because it's, it's fragile. It's not sustainable. It's not a natural thing. 
Um, that's a trait of a severe personality disorder I don't really want to be involved with again. But I also was scared of abandonment um, when I experienced the first rupture in my uh, relationship following the abusive one. You know, I was already very attached in a healthy way this time um, when the first hurtful event happened. And my brain was so deeply encoded to go into that mode of, okay, time to start making yourself smaller and better make sure you stay as perfect as you can in his eyes. Um, you know, that side was battling my empowered. I know my worth. I know I don't deserve that side um, that I worked so hard to get. And that's kind of the most natural version of me, I feel. So, um, you know, I began to experience, because of those two things really battling each other, um, a lot of cognitive dissonance and a lot of confusion and ambivalence around whether to stay in the relationship or not. And my own emotions were confusing because they were so drastically opposing. Um, I really didn't understand that until today, I think, when I wrote this down fully. Um, you know, that blueprint was created to code this um, type of situation for me, you know, still lingering in my mind from the narcissistic abuse. So I plan to work very hard on figuring out how to heal that because um, I don't want it to come back again. That was terrible. So right now I feel good. I feel really comfortable in my own skin and in my own perfections. And I'm praying to God that like that stays because this is how I want to feel. I do not wish to be with anybody who puts that idealization pressure on me or makes me, you know, feel a certain way or it, it gets me to a place where I'm putting that idealization pressure on myself, whether they intend to or not. Um, I have explained enough times how the fuck not to make me feel that way in I'm not the only woman with those needs. They're pretty streamlined and basic, you know. Um, everybody has different needs, but there are some pretty basic ones we should not have to forfeit repeatedly in a relationship. If it's becoming the norm or a pattern, uh, we need to really think about that. So some things are safety, feeling loved, feeling love and belonging, feeling seen by the other person. Um, trust is probably the number one thing with safety, faithfulness, you know, are all pretty core normal needs within a romantic relationship for both partners and within a healthy attachment. So whatever you personally need to fill those things based on what's happened to you is allowed and okay, no matter what that looks like. And if you are finding otherwise and you are experiencing these self-blaming symptoms I've just described, take some time to think about, you know, kind of what I've talked about today. Um, and I think that if we've been in an abuse cycle with someone who idealizes and devalues, we really have to pay attention to those leftovers that have developed in our own minds due to the long-term subjection to that before we knew any better you know, before we knew what was happening to us. So my personal goal for the next chapter of my life is to focus on how to unlearn idealization of myself and how to recognize faster when I'm kind of been kicked back on into that blueprint or back into that mode um, and return to self-acceptance and, you know, 
finding my self-worth again as quickly as possible. Um, because other than my daughter, it's the most important thing in my life. It really is. I need it. All right, guys. I hope that was helpful. Much love. Till next time.